I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. We want everybody to be able to look at the four verses we'll be considering today. So you need a Bible. If you don't have one, these guys have some. As they make their way to the back, get their attention, they'll get a Bible to you. That is marked for you at Philippians 1. And today we will conclude that first chapter of the four in the book of Philippians, which we've been looking at for several weeks. Philippians 1. The year that I graduated from high school, 1980, was an eventful one for the country and for one segment of the populace in particular, that of evangelical Christians, which one theological dictionary defines as those who, like us, quote, believe and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1980 was an eventful year for the nation because we elected a new president, Ronald Reagan, who, according to our current President Obama, was what he called a transformative figure in that he changed the direction of the country, both domestically and internationally. At home, for example, in his eight years as president, he changed the profile of the federal judiciary as he appointed hundreds of conservative judges to the district courts, the appellate courts, and the Supreme Court. He appointed more judges than any president in our history, and it had an effect on the courts for at least a generation. Internationally, he helped bring the decades-long Cold War with the Soviet Union to a head, and its empire began to crumble when the Berlin Wall came down just 10 months after he left office. That year was also important to evangelical Christians because they, that is we, were credited with having helped elect Reagan because in that election year, conservative Christians got actively involved in politics, many for the first time in their lives. In prior elections, evangelicals would vote generally, but they would not campaign. And they would keep their distance from what was seen as the dirty and secular machinery of politics. But 1980 saw uh, new people and new organizations getting involved. Terms like the religious right came into the media's lexicon, referring to conservative Christians now active in politics. New organizations were started, perhaps most prominent of which was one called the Moral Majority started by the Reverend Jerry Falwell, founder of Liberty University. As an 18-year-old evangelical Christian, I voted in my first election that year. And I was a card-carrying member of the moral majority. Conservative Christians, the religious right, moral majority types, evangelicals were flying very high that year. Our guys got elected. We had won. Or had we? Some of us who got involved in that way came to regret aligning our religious movement with politics and with any particular political party. Cal Thomas is a nationally syndicated columnist who early in his career was a correspondent with NBC News, and he's an evangelical Christian. He was Jerry Falwell's right-hand man at the Moral Majority in its first years. 
But he became disillusioned with what he saw of the quest for earthly power that overtook people who claimed to be citizens of another country and owed allegiance to another ruler. He wrote a book in 1999, along with another of Falwell's very close associates, Ed Dobson, in which the authors lament what they saw in their time with the moral majority. The year after that book came out, a book titled Blinded by by Might, Cal Thomas debated Jay Sekulow, who some of you know as someone still carrying the torch for the evangelical political movement. But Cal Thomas expressed his disillusionment. And he said this, During my five years with the moral majority, I was confident of the ability of Christian people to organize ourselves into a political force that would restore righteousness in America. I am now convinced government lacks the power to bring about the changes we wish to see. For the last 20 years and during earlier periods, such as Prohibition, many have tried to reform culture from the top down, believing that unrighteous behavior was a matter of poor leadership. Many blame Washington for our woes. Perhaps the problem is us. And Washington is merely our mirror image. As a nation, we worship the golden calf of materialism. We have easy divorce, even among Christians, and other scandals. Our society can't be improved apart from faith, which transforms from the inside. That improves the outside, but if believers try to clean up the outside without seeing to the inside, they are doomed to futility. Too many of us give lip service to the gospel while spending most of our energies on politics. He mentions Newt Gingrich. Some of you know him if you watch the Fox News channel and Sean Hannity. They're good friends. He says Newt Gingrich kept the contract with America, but he sadly violated contracts with two wives. And now, at the time Thomas was speaking, consorts openly with a woman with whom he is not married. Should we expect lawmakers who cannot impose morality on themselves to be successful in imposing it on the nation? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Why then are so many intent on fixing the world? When political access becomes our goal, the gospel is held hostage to a political agenda. He went on, I like what Dr. D. James Kennedy said in a sermon five days after Ronald Reagan was inaugurated. The sermon was titled, Can Reagan Save America? The text was Jeremiah 17:5, warning against the dangers of putting one's trust in men. He wrote, I'm afraid that some of us, though loudly proclaiming ourselves to be Christians, are at least partial humanists. That is, we trust Jesus to save our souls, but we trust President Reagan to save our country. I do not think our primary objective is to tinker with the kingdom of this world. He said, it's the same with my motel room. I don't like the wallpaper, but I didn't call an interior decorator to redecorate because I'm only staying for one night. We put too much faith in sending the right person to Washington. The political process is very limited in what it can do for our moral and spiritual problems. Let's be under, let's not be under any illusion that anything short of the regeneration of Americans will produce a changed America.
Friends, did you know that the most powerful change agent in the world is not the ballot box? The most important ruler in the world is not an elected official, but one who needs no election or appointment because he is the Lord. The most important work in the world is not a political agenda, but rather the Great Commission. Surrounded by the power and prestige of the great Roman Empire, the great Apostle Paul was not impressed. He understood and he believed that the power of the gospel was more potent than the power of Rome. And so when he wrote the book of Philippians, he addressed the church there with the words that are in verse 27 of chapter 1. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In those words, as we're going to see, he was addressing the priority of the gospel over politics. We need to recapture that priority. And so let's ask the Lord to help us then. Father, we're... Assembled as your people in your presence with your word. We want to know and hear your truth. But hearing your truth is not all we need. Lord, we want to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Lord, we can't even do that on our own. And so we invite, yea, we ask, Holy Spirit, move upon the hearts of your people. Open our hearts. Grant us clarity in our thinking so that we see what you are communicating to us about what is most important. And then, Lord, help us then to leave this place realigning as necessary our our, our priorities for the sake of Christ and the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, again, verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word that's translated worthy... In Greek, and you know your New Testament was written first in Greek, that word is axios. And it was a term of measurement used by merchants when they weighed a product on scales to determine how much should be paid for the product. Worthy is literally bringing up the other beam of the scales. And so it indicates equivalence. It's saying that there must be a balance between profession and practice. What we profess and what we practice must be consistent with one another. It's saying, weigh what it is you've been given in the gospel and then consider how you should live in light of that. You've been given the gospel and you've been saved by it and presumably are being transformed by it. So now live in a way that's consistent with what you say you have and you value and you love. What does this consistent Christian life look like? Well, if you don't have the outline that's inserted in your program out as yet, I encourage you to look at your program. We each week insert an outline there for the message so that you can follow along. And there I say this, a consistent Christian life, first of all, pursues Christ exclusively. A consistent Christian life pursues Christ exclusively. Now, I say exclusively because the way verse 27 begins with whatever happens 
says in other translations this only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. The word only is first in the verse to emphasize its importance. This one thing and this only. Nothing else must distract from this great objective. It must be our all-embracing occupation no matter what happens. Now, in the case of the Philippians, they did not know. And Paul, who wrote to them, did not know whether he would ever see them again. We saw last week in verses 25 and 26 that Paul expressed confidence that he would see the Philippian Christians again. But verse 27 says, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence. That is, even if I don't see you again, this is to be your priority. Whatever happens, only live in a way that's worthy of the gospel. Living exclusively for Christ and the gospel means putting aside lesser things. Lesser things like political power. Now, why do I say that? Because in verse 27, the word, the single Greek word that's translated with two words, conduct yourselves, is the word from which we get our English words political and politics. That line in verse 27 literally says, conduct yourselves as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, citizens of what? Citizens of where? Well, chapter 3 in Philippians, chapter 3 and verse 20, if you'll just take a look there. Chapter 3 and verse 20 tells us straight up. Chapter 3 and verse 20, our citizenship. And that word citizenship in chapter 3 and verse 20 is the same one used in chapter 1 and verse 27 for conduct yourselves. Our citizenship is in heaven. And it appears then that this emphasis in verse 27 on living as citizens of heaven is on purpose. Because that word is used here, but elsewhere, <clears throat> excuse me, elsewhere when Paul instructs us to live a consistent Christian life, he doesn't use the word for citizens as an example. And he does this a number of times in his writings, but one of those is in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 says, live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. The word used in that verse for live a life is different than the one that's used in our verse that includes citizenship. So it appears Paul on purpose used a word that talks about living in a manner as citizens that's worthy of the gospel. Now, why was that emphasized for the Philippians when not for the Ephesians and for others? And the answer has to do with the history of the city of Philippi. Now, when we started this series uh, several weeks ago, you may remember, probably not, that I mentioned that Philippi was a Roman colony. In fact, the book of Acts tells us that Philippi was a Roman colony and the leading city of Macedonia. And at that time, I said that Philippi was named after Philip II of Macedon, who's the father of Alexander the Great. And around 42 B.C., a major battle was fought near the city of Philippi. It was between Cassius and Brutus. They were the assassins of Julius Caesar. And that battle took place between them and those who were victorious, Octavian, 
who was later the emperor Caesar Augustus and Mark Antony. Following these victories, Octavian Augustus honored Philippi by refounding it as a military Roman military colony, endowing its populace with Roman citizenship. And always very astute politically, Augustus populated the town and its surrounding agricultural area with discharged veterans from that war. This both alleviated a population problem they were having in Rome, and it also ensured allegiance to the empire and to the emperor at a strategic spot along a major highway that connected Rome with Asia Asia Minor and other points in the east. In an even more astute move, Augustus did the same 12 years later after he defeated Antony, who had been his ally in the prior war. In another nearby battle in 30 BC, and this time with veterans from Antony's vanquished army. And so he built up loyalty both among those who had once fought with him and those who had recently fought against him. And that was Philippi. It was full of these military uh, expatriates. One commentator says Philippi had the distinction of being a Roman colony, a highly privileged status that gave its inhabitants many of the rights enjoyed by citizens of Rome itself. Such colonies considered themselves to be, quote, little Romes, and they took great pride in that association. They gave unqualified allegiance to Rome and to the emperor, adopted Roman dress and Roman names, and they spoke Latin, the official language of Rome. Another says Paul could not have more carefully chosen and crafted his words to impress and encourage his Philippian brothers and sisters as they struggled in that self-consciously prideful, elitist little Roman colony that was so preoccupied with the coveted citizenship of Rome. Here Paul challenges his beloved Philippians with a counter-citizenship whose capital and seat of power are not earthly but heavenly and whose guarantor is not Nero but Christ. The town of Philippi was enjoying the personal patronage and the benefactions of Lord Caesar. But the Philippian Christians were subjects of the one who alone is Lord and before whom, chapter 2 says, every knee, including Nero's, will bow. So it's a challenge to the Philippians and a challenge to us to remember where our allegiance is and whose citizenship we own. Colossians 1 tells us that God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that He loves. And Paul is saying here to these Philippians in this Roman colony that the gospel is more important than Rome. It's more important than politics. Hear this. It's more important than America. Understanding that should affect then the way we go about our business, the way we talk, the way we try to set context for the giving of the gospel, if the gospel is more important. Colossians chapter 4 is a passage about giving the gospel. And there the same Paul says, pray that God may open a door for our message, the message of the gospel. And then he says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. 
John MacArthur says, when the unsaved look at the church and they do not see holiness, purity and virtue. There appears to be no reason to believe the gospel it proclaims. When pastors commit gross sins and are later restored to positions of leadership in the church. When church members lie, steal, cheat, gossip and quarrel. When congregations seem to care little about such sin and hypocrisy in their midst, the world is understandably repulsed by their claims to love and serve God. And the name of Christ is sullied and dishonored. But it's so easy to get enamored with power and to make whatever compromises are necessary as long as our guy wins. Charles Colson ran religious outreach for the Nixon White House. And he said that, quote, religious leaders were the first to compromise their core beliefs in order to keep their access to the White House. There was an article recently in Christianity Today that talked about our most recent election. Now, I'm going to say something about this. I said something about it a few weeks ago. I think I'll be done with this. But the passage is telling us to live as citizens of heaven. And so if we're going to apply that, then we have got to apply that to where we live and what's going on in our world. In Christianity Today, they said this, there is hardly any public person in America today who has more exemplified what the Bible calls the sinful nature and urges us to shed. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, says Colossians 3.5. This is an incredibly, says Christianity Today, an incredibly apt summary of Trump's life. Idolatry, greed, and sexual immorality are intertwined. Sexuality is designed to be properly ordered within marriage, a relationship marked by covenant faithfulness and profound self-giving and sacrifice. To indulge in sexual immorality is to make oneself and one's desires an idol. That Trump has been his whole adult life an idolater of this sort and a singularly unrepentant one should have been clear to everyone. And then it says, enthusiasm for a candidate like Trump gives our neighbors ample reason to doubt that we believe Jesus is Lord. They see that some of us are so self-interested and so self-protective that we will ally ourselves with someone who violates all that is sacred to us. Now notice, it says enthusiasm for a candidate like Trump. Before the election, I talked about where I find myself in this most distasteful, Election season. And how the best you could do was the lesser of two evils and all of that. And some of you remember that. So friends, many of us were in an untenable position. But as Christians, I, I honestly have to tell you, I do not see how we could be enthusiastic about Donald Trump. If you spew your approval of Trump. Please be aware of this, that unbelievers will understandably be confused and turned off by what they see as our tacit approval of him and his words and his actions. Now, 
I would hazard to say anybody in here, if we were to go through the long list of all of our president-elect's transgressions, that everyone in here would respond by saying, well, I don't approve of that. I don't like that. And you would respond that way if you were asked. But hear this. People shouldn't have to ask. If the gospel and our testimony for the gospel is most important, then hear this. Then lead your discussion with that disapproval. They shouldn't have to ask whether you have a problem with Trump as a person and his words and his actions. Paul did not care about politics. He cared about the gospel and about Christ. And anything in any way, shape, or form that would hinder or detract from that, he didn't engage in, certainly would seek to minimize. And that's what we as wise Christians need to do now in this political season after this election. Has it ever occurred to you that Paul did not campaign against slavery? Now, certainly he would have been against slavery. But you'll read through your New Testament in vain, written during the Roman Empire, when tens of thousands of people were in slavery. And Paul never campaigned against that. Why? Because the gospel in Christ is more important than politics. So a consistent Christian life pursues Christ exclusively. And, secondly, it pursues Christ exhaustively, exclusively, above everything else, and also exhaustively. That is, as we're going to see in the verses now that follow, it pursues Christ in the gospel with all energy and in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. There are four ways that the remainder of this passage tells us that we pursue Christ with everything that we have. First of all, it pursues Christ with all devotion. It pursues Christ with all devotion. Verse 27 again, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit. Now that, those two words, stand firm, are translated from a word that means holding one's ground regardless of danger or opposition. Verse 28 indicates that indeed they were facing opposition because verse 28 says, do all of this without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. The word for stand firm in verse 27 was used of a soldier who defended his position at all costs, even to the point of sacrificing his life. Figuratively, it refers to holding fast to a belief, a conviction, or principle without compromise, regardless of personal cost. And so you have this admonished of Christians throughout the New Testament. Here are a couple examples. 1 Corinthians 16, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. 2 Thessalonians 2, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings that we passed on to you. So the assumption and the reality for those to whom those things were written was that Christians will never be on easy terms with the world. That there will always be opposition to the message of the gospel and those who are willing to live it out consistently. And so therefore we need to be reminded and admonished to stand firm. 
and hold to what you believe and then live out what you believe. But if we're on easy terms with the world, if we don't live a distinctively Christian life, there'll be no opposition. Nobody minds you saying I'm a Christian. All they mind is you living as a Christian. (laughs) But if we don't live as Christians, then there won't be any opposition. This assumes we'll live as Christians, consistent with what we profess. A consistent Christian life pursues Christ exhaustively. It pursues him with, with all devotion, standing firm against opposition. But I say in your outline as well, it pursues Christ with all deference. With all devotion and with all deference. Verse 27, then I will know. That you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Notice the work, the striving is together. And it's together really not just as one. That's what the NIV says there. But it's it's striving together with one mind. Side by side for the faith of the gospel. So with one mind, we have our minds set on, our thoughts set on what is most important. And then our actions follow from those thoughts. Together as one mind, thinking about and committing ourselves and recommitting ourselves to what is most important, Christ and the gospel, and then living accordingly. And that, in turn, is what creates the unity of God's people. We strive together. With one mind. If we're thinking the same thing. And we're committed to the same thing. Then that's what creates our unity here. Now friends do we understand that. That this book of Philippians. Is all about partnership in the gospel. Going back to verse 5 you remember of chapter 1. Where Paul says I thank my God. Every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I give thanks with joy, verse 5, for your partnership in the gospel. So our striving together as one, our, our fellowship, partnership, same word, koinonia. That's all about the gospel. It's not about how friendly we are. Now, I thank God for a friendly church. <laughs> I mean, I'd much rather have that than the opposite. And I hear all the time from people who are guests here. This is one of the most friendly churches. These people made me feel welcome. Keep that up, dear friends. We want to do that. We want to reach out to people. It's a good thing. But if that's all we're about, then we could just be a club that enjoys being together. You see, what sets us apart is not we're just nice people who enjoy each other's company. What sets us apart is what we're committed to with one mind committed to the gospel and the Great Commission. And that in turn shapes everything we do and don't do. That in turn shapes our relationships with one another and our willingness here, as I say, to defer to one another. Because we're going to strive together with sinful people. It means there are times when you're going to have to defer to other people. You're going to have to put aside things that matter less for what matters most. The gospel. What a tragedy it is, wouldn't you agree? When churches who are supposed to be committed to that. 
People get upset with each other, leave and split over much lesser things. And so we strive together with one mind. Jesus understood, of course, the importance of this kind of unity that needed to be present for his people as they go into a hostile world that will impose them. On the night before Jesus was crucified, in John 17, he prayed his high priestly prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer. The one we call the Lord's Prayer is really our prayer, the disciples' prayer. This is the one he prayed. (laughs) This is the Lord's Prayer. And in it he said this, I pray for those who will believe in me that all of them may be one. And the New Testament then underscores this need for unity amongst God's people in several places. Romans 12, in Christ, we though many form one body and each member belongs to the others. So live in harmony with one another. One commentator says, we're to strive then side by side with one mind. It's the teamwork vocabulary of athletes or soldiers. It's at the heart of winning teams. Stephen Ambrose in his book Comrades, which includes the story of Lewis and Clark, describes this as the secret of their epic accomplishments. What Lewis and Clark had done, first of all, was to demonstrate that there is nothing that men cannot do if they get themselves together and act as a team. Paul knew that the success of the church in Philippi depended on such teamwork, but of course the stakes were far higher than the exploration of the American West. It was the faith of the gospel. It was the faith, its spread and its growth, everything for which Paul was spending and being spent. And so a consistent Christian life pursues Christ exhaustively. It pursues him with all devotion and with all deference. And then I say in your outline, it pursues Christ with all diligence, with all diligence. Striving together, verse 27, end of verse 27, Striving together as one, with one mind, for the faith of the gospel, verse 28, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. Striving, despite the opposition, without debilitating fear. Why? Because they're going to be judged. And you're going to be rewarded. That's what he's saying in verse 28. And when he says striving here, I think this is my last Greek word, but the word is soon athleo. And that prefix means with. And athleo is the Greek word from which we get our words athlete and athletics from it. It means to compete together in a contest. And the Bible uses this kind of striving athletic imagery a number of times of our pursuit of the gospel. In 2 Timothy 2, it says, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The faith will be under attack. The gospel will be under attack. And that's why the Bible uses words like contend in Jude and verse 3. Contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. And so here you see the scene. I hope I've laid it out clearly. The gospel is most important. It's more important than everything else. It's more important than Rome, than America, than who gets elected. It's more important than all of those things. 
It shapes then how we live. We live in a consistent way. We're devoted to that. We defer to one another. It's what creates our unity rather than, than lesser things. But we're going to be pursuing this together with all diligence because there is going to be opposition to God's, to God's people. And so you have to, to contend. But he says in verse 28, do not succumb to debilitating fear without being frightened by those who oppose you. How could you do that? Yikes. I mean, it's Rome. And Rome's got all this power. And how am I supposed to not be afraid? One commentator explains it this way. Some of us can remember high school or college athletics when we stepped onto the field or the court or the mat against daunting opponents and we tried our best to look cool and unintimidated, hoping that would be a sign of their destruction and our victory. Of course, our opponents affected the same nonchalance and cool. The bottom line was it didn't make a whole lot of difference because as the event progressed, they found out what we had and more likely what we didn't have. But in Philippi, it wasn't a game. And the stakes were more than a win or a loss. The opponents in Philippi came both from the ranks of the Roman establishment who despised the believers' unromanness and from those who found the lives of the Philippians to be living rebukes to their pagan way of life. Together, these meant that the threat of violence was always there and was sometimes activated. Certainly, this was something that we would naturally fear. But Paul tells the Philippians, do not be frightened in any way by those who oppose you. How could they not be afraid? Well, the rare Greek word that's used here was employed elsewhere for startling horses into a stampede. It describes a panicked reaction. Don't panic, advises Paul. Keep your head. You're a citizen of heaven. God is in control. Don't be intimidated. But unlike the bravado and the posturing at the onset of an athletic event, this is going to be, according to verse 28, a clear sign to them of their destruction. But a sign to you of your salvation, your deliverance, and that from God. Doesn't mean that these adversaries are going to recognize their own doom. Some of them might be vaguely aware of it. But it is nevertheless a sign of their destruction, their judgment. Now, of course, believers see it all, including their own salvation. D.A. Carson explains it this way. Your change in character, your united stand in defense of the gospel, your ability to withstand with meekness and without fear the opposition that you must endure constitutes a sign. That sign speaks volumes both to the outside world and to the Christian community. It's a sign of judgment against the world that is mounting the opposition. It's a sign of assurance that these believers really are the people of God and will be saved on the last day. As an illustration, in 1984, Mehdi Debaj was imprisoned by the government of Iran on charges of apostasy because he converted from Islam to Christianity. He languished in prison for 10 years until his case was tried in 1994. Some of the last lines of his written defense read this. Jesus Christ is our Savior and he is the Son of God. To know him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner, have believed in his beloved person and all his words and miracles recorded in the gospel. And I have committed my life into his hands. 
Life for me is an opportunity to serve him. And death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but I am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus, my Lord. Mehdi Debaj was sentenced to execution, but he was released under pressure from the U.S. State Department. Only to be found dead in a Tehran park. The third Christian murdered in Iran after release from prison. His measured conduct as he calmly stood his ground for the gospel was a sure sign of his enemy's coming judgment and of his salvation. Which perhaps some of those who knew him due to God's grace began to see. And God speaks of this a number of times in Scripture. The fact that what Christians do if they, if they act like Christ in the face of opposition, what that does to those who are opposing them and the assurance that it gives to those who stand fast. First Thessalonians, excuse me, Second Thessalonians 1, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. John chapter 3, Jesus speaks famously. John chapter 3 and verse 16 about those who are perishing. And so you've got these two groups of people, those who oppose the Lord and the Lord's. And they will perish But it's those who believe who will be on the victorious side. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, says John 3.16, but have eternal life. For God sent his son into the world to save the world through him. So you've got two groups of people and two only, those who perish and those who are saved. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. A consistent Christian life. Pursues Christ exhaustively. It means pursuing with all devotion and deference and diligence. And lastly, in your outline, it pursues Christ with all gratitude. Gratitude. I couldn't come up with another D for that one. (laughs) With all gratitude, all thankfulness. Verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe, But also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You see verse 29 there? It has been granted to you to two things. Believe. The word granted means literally it has been graced. It has been graciously given to you. And if you just do the one of those, it has been graciously given to you to believe. We're all good with that, that God has graciously given us the ability to believe. And indeed he has. We'll see in a minute. But then you see the second one there. He has graciously given to us to suffer. Wow, really? I like the one but not the other. First, this gracious grant of the ability to believe. 
In Acts chapter 13, the Bible says those who heard this, those who heard the gospel message were glad and they honored the word of the Lord. Now notice, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. You see, friends, the reason you believed, if you're a believer, is because God gave you the ability to believe. He granted to you the ability to believe. In fact, the Bible teaches this explicitly in Ephesians chapter 2. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive even when we were dead in transgressions. You were spiritually dead. He made you spiritually alive so that now you have the ability to believe. Therefore, just a few verses down from that, famously in verse 8, it says, it is by grace you have been saved through this belief, through faith. And this grace and this belief that goes with it is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So God has granted to you the ability to believe. The fact that at some point in time in your life, you heard the gospel message and believed it is not due to any merit whatsoever in you. It's not because you were smart enough to know a good deal when you see one. It was because God took your spiritually dead spirit and made it alive and breathed life into you. And you responded by believing. God has granted to you to believe. It's a gracious gift. But then it says he has granted to you to suffer for him as well. Now, why would that be anything gracious? (laughs) Famously, Paul said to Timothy, everyone who wants to live... A godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How can he say that? How can he know that there is going to be some opposition for those whom God has granted to believe and therefore have been transformed from the inside out? And now as they live that and they speak that, they are going to experience opposition of various forms. How does he know that? Here's how he knows. Because Jesus said, again, the night before he died, if the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. And remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. So do you see what's being said here? What Paul is saying in verse 29 of Philippians chapter 1 is that this grace has been given to you to suffer because as you suffer, it is a sign that you belong to Jesus. As you are persecuted, it's a sign that you are a soldier of the ultimate master. And therefore, you are graced to be a part of that. He gave you the ability to believe, and now that shows up in the way you live, even in opposition. And that's why the apostles, when they were hauled before the religious authorities, as they often were for preaching the gospel, they left that group called the Sanhedrin. And the Bible says this, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Well, how am I going to do this? How are you going to do this? We'll be done. At the top of your outline, you see what the name of the message is? Homeland Security. And the reason I've titled it that is this. If you recognize, friends, your true homeland is in heaven. If you recognize that you are a foreigner not staying here very long at all. If you recognize that your king 
is the king of all kings and he has already won the victory. If you have that kind of secure, absolute belief that your homeland is elsewhere, if you believe he's Lord and heaven's your home, then you'll be secure enough to stand up and to defer and to strive and even to suffer. But it all begins with a mindset that says, heaven is my home, heaven is my citizenship, and Jesus is my king. Your take-home truth is this then. The life of a Christian is to be all about Christ. We're going to pray. As we do, Christian friend, I encourage you to do as I will do. Confess to the Lord our distraction and placing other things as priorities over the thing and the one in Jesus. And those of you who don't know Christ... You don't know anything about this commitment and putting everything else below it. When we pray, that can change. Because God can give you that spiritual life that you so desperately need to believe in Him. If you desire to believe in Him, you express that belief this way. You realize you're a sinner. Recognize that Jesus is the King, but He's the King who came as we celebrate at Christmas to live the life you should have lived, to die the death that we deserved. You repent of your sin. Lord, I've been going my way. But I'm going to go your way. I'm going to follow you. I give my life to you. When we bow and we pray in just a moment from your heart to God in your own words, you say that to him. I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus has come to save me. He is the Lord. I want to follow him with my life. Let's bow together. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it was not only relevant for the Philippians nearly 2,000 years ago. It's relevant for Americans today in 2016. Lord, we find ourselves allured by power, by politics. We're willing to compromise what we say we believe in order for us to have access to this power to be on what we perceive to be the winning team. Oh, Lord, save us from this. Deliver us from this. Help us, Lord, to remember your kingdom is not of this world. Help us to remember our citizenship is in heaven. Help that, Lord, and our commitment to you and your gospel to shape everything we say and everything we do. May that create the one mind of your people at Community Bible Church with which we go forward into the future. Lord, help us then too, because we have that homeland security, a mindset that says we're only here for a temporary period of time to live accordingly. And then, and only then, will we be willing and able to endure those things that you allow into our lives. And Lord, for those who came into this room without knowing you, we ask you, Lord, to graciously grant to them to believe. As you granted to me to believe, it is within your power to do this. Holy Spirit, move upon the hearts of some and draw them out of the world and to yourself for the glory of Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.